All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to worship with you. It's a privilege and honor that I get to share the Word of God with you. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday, and it was an interesting conversation because it was kind of out of the blue. Someone called me and asked uh, what the biggest issue he thought I was about our current state of our church and why we are losing so many in our generation uh, to the world. And I gave, uh, I, it, was, it was just out of the blue uh, phone call, and I gave him basically two, two kind of reasons why. Number one was uh, worship. Um, we don't worship as much. We don't worship together. And we don't take worship seriously. We make excuses for worship. We go places. We do other things. Uh, we may say worship is a priority in the Christian's life, and yet uh, we haven't seen our parents or even ourselves really live that priority out. Number two, I said it was education. What are we learning? Are we leaving it up to other people to educate our children, especially on matters of truth, spirituality? You know, do you send your kids to college and they come back and say, the stuff that you believe in, that's superstition. I believe in science or something to that effect. And I was thinking about that before I started today's sermon. Uh, if I were to continue on, it would be what I'm going to talk about today. Is I don't think we give enough in the church warnings. But the Bible is full of warnings, ample warnings in the Bible. If you're given something, then there's a warning attached to what you have been given, especially, especially the more precious it is. So imagine how precious the gospel is that we've been given. Have you been given warnings about how you handle the gospel, how you handle the word of God? And so with that in mind, let us start this message this morning. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, to this, this morning's uh, scripture passage comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. This is a sermon series that I have been going over uh, for the past two weeks and so this is our third week in Hebrews, and you can find this passage that we'll be going over in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 941. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and if you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
By the time we get to chapter two of this book, there is a little doubt that the one giving the sermon to the Hebrews is a master orator. There are alliterations, illustrations, and if you listen to the Greek, there's even rhythm. All these three things are even just in verse one of chapter two. But verse one of chapter two is a sequence going and continue on from chapter 1. The fact that Christ is greater than the angels should follow logically then to the revelation derived through the Son, which then we should receive with the utmost heaviness. I'm going to explain more of that as we continue on. The writer of Hebrews in verse 1 says, We must pay closer attention. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The language that's used here in the Greek is actually nautical language. It's about when you would, you know, navigate with ships. And so you kind of see this English translation use the word drift as well. But pay much closer attention are words that you would use to show how a ship must be anchored to the seabed or tied to the dock. Otherwise, if you are not tied to the dock or if you're not anchored to the seabed, you would drift away and you would drift away off your course. So now if we are to connect chapter 1 verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, in these final days of history, that's where we are, we're in the end days, these final days of history, the ultimate word is given to us by his son, then if that's the case, which it is, we must pay much closer attention or the closest attention. Why not just write out? In the English translation, the closest attention. Why closer attention? Well, the language here assumes that the community that was being spoken to were growing negligent in their commitment to Christ and his message. And the warning then is that you have to tie yourself to the word given to us by the Son. Otherwise, there will be a drifting off of course. Now, if you connect this illustration to, of the ship with the words spoken, you will see a ship that is in danger of drifting off course, but it will be drifting off course to the point of no return. There is peril facing the community of believers. It's a stark warning to those that are listening and even reading this letter to the Hebrews. And now the following three verses after verse 1. Verse 1 is setting up what he's going to talk about in verse 2, 3, and 4. This is a warning that I'm giving. You have to pay much closer attention. And the following three verses, 2 to 4, gives us reasons why this is so important. I'll just name three. Number one, if disregard for the Mosaic law brought forth just retribution, meaning just punishment, how much more for the disregard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So the first point is, if disregard for the Mosaic law brought forth just retribution, how much more for the disregard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, I would imagine that there may be those that are out there that think that because the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the gospel of grace. Grace. 
But they would take it to mean it's the gospel of niceness, niceties, nicisms. This is a group of people that would see Jesus Christ as the nice guy. He's just an agreeable guy. You don't say anything bad. You don't say anything that you wouldn't want to hear or other people wouldn't want to hear. And in their minds, no one likes this. No one dislikes this Jesus because he just wins over people with his niceness. Well, is that the case? Is that what we see? He was just so nice and people out of the blue decided, let's just crucify him. He's just too nice for me. Well, there was an instance in the Bible. It's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. A rich young ruler came to Jesus saying, he wants to follow Jesus. I want to follow you, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to the rich young ruler? Does he say, awesome, the more the merrier, bro. Come on in. He doesn't say that. He says no, and he tells them to sell all his possessions and then follow him. So this person with influence, influence, with wealth, prosperity, he says, you know what? I want to follow you. I want to make my wealth part of this movement. It's basically what he's saying. And Jesus says, no, you sell it, give it to the poor, then you follow me. When the rich man hears it, he goes away sorrowful. That's what the Bible says. And then as he's turning away to go away sorrowfully, does Jesus grab him by the shoulder and say, hey man, it was just a test. It's cool. Just follow me. I was just kidding about selling all your possessions. It's, 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 it's not a thing. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. The Bible records the rich young ruler just going away. When a lot of people start to follow Jesus Christ, did Jesus say, wow, this is so awesome. There are so many people. We're, we're going to have to... Make new seats. We're going to have to go to bigger venues. Did he say, wow, this is so awesome that so many people want to follow me. What does he say in Luke 14, 26, when he saw that there were a lot of people gathering to listen to him, to try to follow him? He goes, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't think anyone would be able to chalk what he just said to the nice things that you would say if you wanted to recruit disciples. If you want to recruit people, is this how you go about it? All the synoptic gospels record this, but when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach the gospel, if anyone didn't listen to them, he would, they would preach the good news, they would have signs and wonders that we'll talk about later, and if they didn't listen to them, how did Jesus instruct his disciples to respond to those that didn't listen? Did he say, guys, guys, there are going to be people that are stubborn. They've just had a hard life. They've had a history. They have some mental illness maybe they're going through. But we must never give up. Keep on preaching until they're convinced. Eh, That's not what he said. That's not what he said. This is what he says in Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's the Synoptic Gospels. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. That's pretty not nice in our book, in our definition of niceness, in my opinion. There is a Canaanite slash 
Syrophoenician woman that goes to Jesus Christ. This is not a Jewish person. And she asks for healing. What does Jesus call her in the Gospels? He calls her a dog. People have listened to this. People have read this. They're like, Jesus sinned here. He's racist. Because they just can't get their minds around what just happened. But what Jesus doesn't do, he doesn't go, he doesn't soften it. He doesn't go, oh, you're, you're a dog, but you're like a cute little puppy. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, just thinking about it is incredulous because what he says, whatever we give to the children, we shouldn't give it to the dogs. And I get that all these moments that I've just mentioned are teaching moments that Jesus would use to teach his disciples. I get that. But the point is that when we have turned Jesus into some kind of nice guy, he was never a nice guy. Jesus isn't what we would think to be as nice. He is kind. Let's get that straight. He is kind. But let me remind you about the kindness that God has. So when people are like, oh, huge, didn't you hear? It's God's kindness that leads us into repentance. Absolutely true. It's the Lord's kindness that leads you into repentance. Where is that from? That's from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. But like we do in exegesis, let's read the verse before and read the verse after to put kindness into perspective. Romans chapter 2, it says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. That's the verse before. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the context. See, our adoption of this niceness doctrine is not a doctrine that we would see in the Word of God. And in fact, this niceness doctrine has led people away from the true gospel and straight down to heresy, things like universalism. And heresy leads us straight down to hell because that is not the gospel. And something that the writer also is beckoning is that as you read this, you are seeing that God will not be mocked. You cannot take advantage of him and twist and turn him like you pervert everything else in your life because you need everything else to do your bidding. I think I'm right. It's ridiculous that God would do things like this. I think this is right. So God better twist and turn so that he fits my narrative. That's the perversion of God. You're trying to make God like you. God is not like you. And so, if the people that disregarded the Mosaic law were severely punished, this disregard then for the gospel would lead then to catastrophic consequences. That's the logic that is going through this text the severity is compared and shown to us in verses 
2 and 3, the beginning of 3, which is, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What does that mean? That means the message was declared by angels and it proved to be reliable? Well, to the Hebrew person, it would have been obvious that one, the most angels that this part, that the most angels appeared when something was given was the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon Seir. Upon us he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. The Septuagint also points out that it was angels that were in his right hand. That means when the law was given, it's not just one angel, you would see 10,000 angels. That's a big deal. That's what this is pointing out to. Not only that, in Psalm 68, David is singing about the people of God being led out of Egypt into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Why? To receive his word, what we classically think of as the Mosaic Law or the Ten Commandments. And in verse 17 of Psalm 68, it says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai, Sinai is where the law was given, is now in the sanctuary. That's how incredible it was when they received the law of God. In Acts, Stephen also refers to this part where angels have delivered the law of God in chapter 7, verse 38. And in verse 53 as well, I'm just going to read verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This, is what, this was what was said in his indictment against those that were listening. You received this law, and it was given to you by a myriad of angels. The myriad of angels were sent to deliver to you the law. And in this Hebrew passage, the word message, or when we see the word law, it's what we see in the Greek, logos. That's the word logos. That's what message is translated from. When you see the word message here, it's from Lagos. That means the word of God was given to you through the angels. And now, as amazing as all of this was, as incredible the sight must have been, as heavy as the law was that was given to us on Mount Sinai, now, someone greater than all these angels has come. If someone greater than all these angels has come, how shall we escape? That's the question. Is there any room for fleeing if this is the case? And what verse 3, the beginning portion says when he says great salvation, a salvation as great as this, is showing us the greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility, and also the greater the peril. It's a rhetorical question that he asks. There is no escape from this great peril if you were to neglect the ultimate message. There is great accountability that is demanded for the message that the angels brought. How much more for the word that was spoken through the Son? 
Going on in verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. I'm just going to stop it right there to give you point number two. We must then be hearers of the word. Hearers. If you cannot hear, you are under a curse. And this is what Isaiah was told to preach in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It sounds mean, maybe. It doesn't sound nice, but Jesus actually quotes exactly what I read from Isaiah 6 when people ask him, why, why, Jesus, are you speaking in riddles and parables? And he quotes Isaiah 6. The reason why I'm speaking in parables is because of this. It was a judgment. The parables acted as a judgment for those who could not understand. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 6 again in the very final portion of the book of Acts. In Acts 28, as they close out this book, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 6, this section again. All three instances that were given, that were when Isaiah, Jesus Christ, and Paul were giving these warnings, they were centered around something, though. That's something that I want to kind of focus on here. It was centered around the activity, then, of preaching. And this is what the author of Hebrews is exceedingly interested in as well. One commentator says this about the author as he is reading this exact portion. He is aware of the passage of time which separates the period of Jesus' ministry from his own day. He had not participated in the events that marked the inauguration of salvation, but he insists upon the continuity of the present with that pristine past by sketching the character of the tradition through which he and his readers came to faith. So why is preaching so vitally important? Even things like warnings. Well, first, it says, it was declared by God. The message of salvation begins like this. At first, the word arche means in the beginning or first things. Word of salvation started with God. And that's where he, this is, I'm going to try to trace it back to why preaching is so important. But this is where we trace back our tradition. This is the Christian tradition. The Christian tradition didn't start from the West. It didn't start in Europe. And it didn't even start in the Middle East. Where does the Bible say that the Christian tradition started from? It started from God. Luke does a wonderful job of it when he writes in his genealogy that this goes all the way back to, and then Luke 3, he starts with Jesus, goes back to Joseph, keeps on going back, 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 the son of this, son of this, the son of this person, goes to the son of uh, Seth, who was the son of Adam, but he doesn't stop at Adam. Where does Luke stop? He goes back to God. The Christian tradition started from God, and the author of Hebrews is pointing this out. That our salvation story, the gospel that you receive, has been given to us by God himself. So if we don't hear the word, we are not hearing God. And the economy of God, or the economy of the church, revolves around this fact. That God declared 
to us his word, but he also declared his word, gave it to the apostles, and gave it to us. And you can find this kind of progression in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4. But this preaching, the declaration of the word of God, isn't simply, though, for information. The reason why you would hear preaching isn't so that you increase your information. Preaching is supposed to point to this great salvation. And that means, chapter 1, verse 3, understanding that Jesus Christ made purification for sins. So who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ then embodied the word of God and he accomplished the word of God. This is also why the reformers would understand if this is the case and then they're trying to tie all these things that the Bible is saying together, this is why the reformers took preaching so seriously. Whoever is here on this pulpit should preach very seriously. Martin Luther understood the importance of preaching, the centrality of the sermon in a worship service. Although it was done by preachers, this is what he would say. He believed it was only done in a proximate sense. The real word comes from God. So it's not the servant that's speaking that gives it power. It's actually God. John Calvin called preaching the sacramental word. Not that it's a sacrament in the sense of the Lord's Supper or baptism, but in as a means of God communicating with his people. It's instituted by God, and also it's a means of confirming and building your faith. That's what preaching is. This is also one of the things that we call the ordinary means of grace, including prayer, the sacraments, meaning the Lord's Supper and baptism, church discipline and her care for her members, these are the ordinary means of grace. That means these are means that God has appointed by which we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, directed to Christ, and are sustained and nourished in our union with Him. And so what that means is our ongoing sanctification is propelled by the ordinary means of grace. This is the Christian tradition. And that's why the Christian community is made up of hearers, which leads us to our final point. I want to kind of tie all these points together in a linear fashion this morning. The final point is Christian tradition is made effective by the witness of God. Christian tradition is made effective by the witness of God. While God, it says in verse 4, also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the preaching of salvation in Jesus Christ is what the preacher must do. The preaching of the wrath to those who do not repent is also what preachers must do. But these things are made effective by the witness of God, not by the preacher's charisma, not by his convincing arguments, but they are made effective by the witness of God. The veracity of every statement in the Bible is corroborated by God himself. And this is what it means that the witness was born by signs and wonders and various miracles and by, si and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. The word also that we see here in verse 4 is translated from a present participle in the Greek, which when, when rendered would imply that what would be preached should be led down and then displayed in the life of the church. This is why, Jesus, uh, this is why James would also exhort his readers that, you shouldn't only be hearers of the word, but doers. There is a progression. When you hear the word of God preached, 
then you will see that light up in the community of the church. And so, after saying that, if God is the witness, how does he verify it? It says, first signs and wonders. This is meant to be taken as one expression. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 3 to 4, it says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Or in Deuteronomy 6.22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. So what are signs and wonders and why is this language here? Well, it points to events. Signs and wonders means they are events that we would see as unnatural or supernatural. When you saw signs and wonders... What it would do in the Old Testament was it would point to God's relationship with his people. But not only that, it would point to a specific purpose that God had intended. And in this case, what, we, what I just read, it was the Exodus. For instance, the author of Hebrews is describing that when he is talking about the signs and wonders, what is he talking about here? Here, when he mentions signs and wonders, he is confirming the gospel. He is confirming the gospel. This was the purpose of signs and wonders in the apostolic age. It gave us the gospel, and it gave us the New Testament writings. So, signs and wonders are there for God to show that he has a relationship with his people, pointing him and directing them to a purpose. That's what signs and wonders are. The question that people ask is, do we have signs and wonders now? Do we have signs and wonders now? And then I would ask, what for? Why do you need signs and wonders now? Because the gospel has already been confirmed. So why do you need signs and wonders now? What do you need to confirm? Do you need to confirm another gospel If that's the case, here's what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be anathema, or accursed. Verse 9, as we said before, so now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you that you have received, let him be accursed. The word of God has been affirmed. The gospel has been confirmed. I ask again, why do you need signs and wonders for today? Because the answer is clear. You don't. We don't. We have every single thing that signs and wonders were ultimately pointing to. Why do you need a sign? For where Teaneck is when you're in Teaneck. This also points to the next word, miracles. It's translated from the word dunamis, which also means power. And so signs and wonders and the power of God was shown to affirm and confirm the word and the gospel. So do we need signs and wonders or dunamis or miracles to provide for the Lord to lay any new foundation? Absolutely not. 
Jesus Christ is the perfect foundation, and this is what all the signs and wonders and miracles pointed to. Now that I've said all this, some of you may be a little confused. Uh, some of you actually sent me a video of someone addressing the topic of miracles. And this is what the person would say. The argument for cessation is flimsy, quote, flimsy at best. He kept on saying this. The argument for cessation is flimsy at best. And I was, I was listening to this response. I was like, but what is the argument for cessation? You have to say the argument for cessation and then say that argument is flimsy. You can't just say the argument for cessation is flimsy at best. That doesn't make any sense. Cessation isn't something that you can just make up. You have to define the word that you're saying is flimsy or the argument that you're saying is flimsy. Because cessation does not mean Cessation does not mean that the supernatural work of God is ceased. That's not what it means. Of course there is healing. We're even called to pray for healing. Of course, lives are changed from death to life. Lives are converted. People believe in Jesus Christ. Their ears are open. That's a miracle. They are supernatural workings of God that still happen today. But here, in this strict sense of the word miracle, dunamis, does that happen today? Meaning, do signs and wonders, where axe heads float, people go rise from the dead, water is turned to blood, do these things happen today? And the answer is no, they do not. There's no evidence for any of these things. But more importantly, more importantly, there is no need for them because we have been given the ultimate that all the signs and wonders ever pointed to. And when people ask Jesus, give us a sign, then we'll believe you. This is how Jesus responded. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I will contend, though, that some people mean miracles to say that God supernaturally intervenes in his creation. Yes, he does supernaturally intervene, but that's not what the scriptures mean when it talks about signs and wonders and dunamis and miracles. If someone insists, though, if someone insists to me that they saw a sign or wonder, I would be very, very careful, be very wary, because it's Jesus who warned his disciples in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets. False Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Christ will not contradict himself, meaning the signs and wonders pointed to Christ. Everything that he said is true and it's embodied in himself. He fulfilled it in himself. The gospel has been given to us. Christ is revealed to us there's no more after that. Until the parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Now, after saying these things about the signs and wonders and miracles, what about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Because a lot of charismatics believe in the gifts. I believe in the gifts too, but not in the charismatic way. The word gifts are normally translated from the Greek word charismata. Charismata is where we say charismatics because it just means gifts. But in this case, where it says the word gifts, charismata isn't used. The word merismas is used. Merismas is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's actually in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It's also in Hebrews. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Remember, this is translated here as gifts of the Holy Spirit. Merismas, gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is also merismas in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Where is merismas here? Merismas is the word translated to division. Division, that's merismas. So merismas means a Division or distribution, in a sense, it means divvying up. And so what is the point of saying gifts of the Holy Spirit here? The point of the statement is right after. The reason why he says gifts of the Holy Spirit is because he's mentioning this is according. This divvying up is according to his will. The point is that the Holy Spirit divvies up as he pleases. The last portion of this verse points to the Holy Spirit's sovereignty and the author's high view of the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's because the Holy Spirit gives us understanding according to his will. The purpose of all these things in verse 4 is to validate the statement that God has spoken ultimately and definitively through Jesus Christ. And it is God who will carry out his witness. His witness did not and does not belong to man, or man's capabilities. It is God who will ultimately keep together the Christian tradition that he himself disseminated, divvied up. So the warning then extends to those that would try to break this tradition as well as neglect that tradition. Because everything in this passage points to God. It points to the sovereignty of God. The warning, the exhortation, and even the encouragements And I believe that even in difficult seasons of our lives, warnings like these give us the jolt that we need to keep on keeping on by having us recognize our true need for a Savior, to pay much closer attention to Jesus and to recognize that we need to cling on to him. The harder things get, the more confusing things get, the more difficult things get, the more trying the times become, the more persecution that comes, the more confusing maybe even the doctrine that is being put out there on the internet for you to hear what the writer of or the author of Hebrews is saying. We need to pay much closer attention to what the Son has said to the Word of God and to recognize that we need to cling on to Him. In Psalm 63, it says this, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
All this imagery, I thought, when I was reading Psalm 63, pointed to all the imagery that we saw here with the angels in God's right hand. In fact, now, how are we upheld? We're upheld by God's right hand. The same one where he had the myriad of angels come down and give us the word. Now in Jesus Christ, God upholds us with that right hand. And so now what do we do? We cling to God no matter what. His word is unchanging. His son is eternal. There is no new foundation given, but he is the one that will carry what he has said to completion in our lives, but in all of time and history. And so that's the warning that's given. And I think when I hear certain warnings, thinking like, man, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Who wants to hear warnings? But the more you know God, the more you understand his love for us, the more you understand these warnings are given for our good. And you start to love the warnings. You're like, yeah, that's a, that's a good warning. I need to cling to him. I need to make sure my, my, my ship is tied to the dock so I don't drift away. I don't want to drift away because if I drift away, I'm lost. So that's why the warning is given. This is why also when we preach the word, we preach it in its entirety. And that's why when we hear words like this, even if it's a warning to the hearer, this is absolutely good news. This is such good news that it's God who gave us the witness himself, God who keeps it, and he's the one calling you to hold on and cling to him. So my friends, as you hear the word of God, let us do everything in our power to cling on to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us. We ask, God, that we would be a people that would understand that even warnings, even exhortations, these are amazing, amazing examples of grace that you give your people. So help us to remember that and live out the Christian tradition, what has been passed down to us with veracity, with effectiveness, because, oh, Lord God, you are the one that empowers your church. Let's take this time to pray. As the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, lift up unto the Lord a prayer asking God that you would complete the tasks that he has set before you, that you would do his will as he has called you to do it. Let's pray.